0: We're going to start there. It's page 944. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 944. Remember, this is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers... And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, John. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and and uh, delighted to be able to open up the scriptures here with you this morning. Uh, before we dive into this, though, let me just remind you in two weeks, March 23rd, we're going to begin a brand new series called Roots. And if you would call this your church home, I want you to be here for this series. I know we're kind of r- about to start spring break, and the next couple weeks might be a little crazy. But, but coming, coming out of that, March 23rd, we'd love you to, to be here for four weeks as we look at how, as a church, we're going to lay down roots for the sake of uh, our community and for the future. We, as you know, in the last few weeks we've been telling you, we recently purchased some land and it's right next door. We're kind of in the process of, of finalizing all of that stuff. And uh, we want to talk about not just the land and not just the money, though that'll be part of it, but really going big picture. What, what are we going to do together to make, uh, as a church, to make a long-lasting impact And that's what Roots will be. So if you call this your church home, please join us for that. We would love to have you. And then uh, as soon as that series is over, we'll have Easter and just a great time to celebrate and do baptisms and all the stuff that John was just talking about. Um, We're going to dive into Romans 8 here. Uh, We've been studying through the book of Romans. If you're new with us, we've been doing that for just about a year with uh, a few breaks here and there. And uh, we've sl- kind of slowed down and taken a lot of time in Romans 8 because it's so rich and has so many just incredibly encouraging truths. When, before we started this series, so many people told me, oh, I can't wait for us to do Romans. And what they meant was, I can't wait to do Romans 8. And what they really meant was, I can't wait to hear about Romans 8:28." That's what we looked at last week. It's one of the most staggering promises in the whole Bible, Romans 8, 28. Look at it there with me. It says, and we know, not we hope, not we wish. This is certain. This is a promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a promise for those who love God. This is a promise for God's people that everything, all things, good things, bad things, all of it works together for good. We're going to talk more today a little bit about what that means and, and why we can trust that, but, but that's a staggering promise, right? I mean, that's a promise that could only be true if God is big and if God is majestic and if God is powerful and if God is good, right? This is not the kind of promise that some sort of wimpy, small, nervous God could handle, right? Right? Uh, Yesterday was kind of an exciting day for, for our family. My brother-in-law is a hockey coach in Ohio. He's a high school hockey coach. And um, his team was kind of un- unrated throughout the, most of the season. But, but yesterday, we're playing in the state finals for Ohio uh, for, for high school hockey championship. And maybe you've heard about this if you've watched SportsCenter last night or this morning. Um, but they had an unbelievably kind of historic, epic game. Because what happened was they, they played regulation. At the end of regulation, it was tied one-to-one. So they went in overtime. Well, in high school, you're not allowed to do a shootout, so you just keep playing overtime periods. Well, they ended up playing seven overtime periods. So, I mean, and and throughout the game, we're, we're getting text. You know, we had family at the game, and we're asking for text updates, and so we're doing that, and then finally we found online sort of this place where you could stream the other school's high school, like, radio broadcast. I mean, it was just... So it was just kind of this wild, crazy day. Well, what happens at the end of seven periods is the Ohio State Commissioner and the athletic directors, everybody get together and decide, this is getting dangerous. Everyone's exhausted. Everyone's dehydrated. This is a problem. And so they just canceled the game, called it a tie, and declared both teams co-state champions. And um, everyone was like, no, that's terrible. I mean, it was just this and so it's on Sports Center, right? My, my brother-in-law is getting called by the Dan Patrick's show saying, hey, we'd like to have you talk about this. And, and it's just, it's just kind of wild. And so I'm, I'm talking to Mike last night, and I said, you know, of all the things that you thought were going to happen today, this wasn't one of them, right? Like this was not one of the things that you thought maybe this could happen, right? And, and, and I was sitting there kind of from a distance following this going, this is unbelievable. I mean, how could this possibly happen? And you know, God never had that feeling. God was never like, whoa, seven overtimes. <laughs> who would have thought? No, God knew about that, right? that. That was part of God's plan. This is a big God who knows all and holds all together by the word of his power. He's not flustered. He's not nervous. He's not stressed. He is a great and glorious God. That's the promise of Romans 8, 28. You might begin to go, well, that's such a big promise. How do we know that that's true? How do we know it's really right? Because I could come to you and make a big promise, right? I could come to you and say, hey, next week I'm going to give you $10 million. And and how good of a promise would that be? Not very good, because I don't have $10 million. And I can't get $10 million. I can't, right? I mean, that would be a worthless promise, right? A promise is only as good as the person making it. and and the track record that they've demonstrated to deliver on promises like that. So how can we trust a promise like Romans 8, 28? Well, the next two verses, 29 and 30, that's what we're going to unpack today, give us the reason we can trust that that promise is true. You see this because verse 29 begins with an important word. It's a short word, but important. It's the word for. It could be because we know, verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, how do we know that? For, because, here's how we know that, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and, and so on. This, this lays the foundation. This is why we know it's true. We know that God is working all things together for good, and here's kind of the big idea here today. We, we know that he's working all things together for good because he has loved us. From first to last. We know it's true because God is trustworthy and because God has demonstrated, and this passage explains how God has loved us from beginning to end, first to last. Men, how many of, how many of us love to start projects, right? And, and sometimes have a hard time finishing them, right? And there's a few laying around and maybe your wife's like, yeah, when are you going to finish that, buddy, right? I mean, that kind of a thing. Um, God doesn't have unfinished projects. I think the, the most colossal unfinished project it, the, that you're probably familiar with in our part of town is the Elevation Chandler building. Do you know about that one? You ever driven by Chandler Mall? Here's what you'll see. Right, Chandler's this nice, beautiful town, a lot of commerce right by the mall, and then you get this little slice of Beirut right when you just drive right by. Right, and you're just going. What is that? Like, what happened, right? I mean, they, they started a project, right? Someone had plans, someone had architect. they went through the city, they, they had some funding, they got approval, they got permits, they started it, and now it's that. <laughs> and what this passage is going to show us is that God doesn't leave his people like that. Your life right now, listen, your life may feel really unfinished, and it may feel like a little slice of Beirut. And you may be going, "What? how is God going to make good of this? God finishes what he starts. You may look like that now, but this passage tells us you won't look like that in the end. Because God from first to last has loved you, and he's going to work all things together for your good. So let's get into this uh, passage. These verses tell us really uh, five things that God has done uh, First people, five things that God has done, five words. These are all verbs. Uh, Paul describes all of them in the past tense. Just so you know, when I mention Paul, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. He's the guy who wrote this. Uh, he was, for most of his life, an enemy of Christianity, a proponent of Judaism. Uh, Jesus got a hold of his life. He became a champion for the cause of Christ, I ended up writing um, much of the New Testament. And so he's writing this book to the, the Romans, and in chapter 8 here, he's been trying to encourage them, you're secure, you're loved, and, and, and nowhere does it maybe get clearer. Uh, well, it's clear throughout the whole thing, I shouldn't say that. It's really clear all over. Um, but here are five clear, specific things that God has done to prove that he's going to work all things together for your good. Now, the first two uh, have some possibility of being maybe misunderstood, so I'm going to spend a little bit longer on the first two just because the words themselves uh, can be a little confusing. Based on your background or maybe your, your experience growing up in church, you may even have some confusion. You may even have some of the things that I say today kind of rub you wrong and go, that's not how I feel like I was taught. That's not what I feel like I grew up with. I hope what you'll see is that the convictions of what I'm saying are rooted in the text, I'm not just up here spouting what I think. I'm I'm trying to say what I think God's saying. But I understand that it it may not jive with your experience. So if that's the case, let me just tell you, we would love for this to begin the conversation, not end it, okay? So if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you have concerns, I'll be right up here in this corner after the service. We'd love to talk with you, answer questions, um, and, and begin that conversation, okay? So five things that God has done. Here's the first one. God has foreknown his people, God foreknew us. It says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. First thing that God did is God foreknew his people. Now that word is a word that that could mean two different things depending on the context, okay? So in, in certain contexts, that Greek word means to know beforehand. In other, other contexts, that same Greek word means to choose beforehand, right? So, so one, you could almost say, is foresight, knowing beforehand. God would have foresight, those he foresaw. The other would be almost like foreloved, right? So, so one way it could be translated is, is new in advance. The other way is chose in advance. Well, how do you know which one it is? How do you know what Paul means here? Well, again, you have to understand the context. There's a number of places in Scripture, I'll show you uh, th- where this word is used, and like in this verse, God is described as the subject. God is the one doing the foreknowing. There are other places where it talks about uh, a person knew this in advance or a person thought this in advance, but, but I, what I want to show you are some verses that describe when God saw in it, when God foreknew. Okay? W- what did he mean? Does that mean that he just knew about it or that he actually um, chose it and made it happen? Okay, so look at some of these examples. Acts 2, 23 is the first one. This is the apostle Peter preaching. He says uh, about the crucifixion, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in that context, foreknowledge, is that context saying God knew about it in advance or God chose it to happen in advance? we'll just read it, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is not just God knew this would happen. This was part of God's plan. This is why uh, God sort of scripts in detail in Isaiah 53 how the crucifixion would take place. Now, he was also, Jesus was also crucified and killed by people who really wanted to kill him. They made real choices God didn't violate those real choices. Those real choices actually helped accomplish what God had determined, what God had chosen to take place. So that's one particular context. Here's the next one. 1 Peter 1, same word is used talking about Jesus, that Jesus was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, is this saying that God the Father knew that Jesus would come and be manifest, or that God the Father chose that Jesus would come and be manifest. Well, God the Father chose that that would happen. That was God's plan, was to send his son. Romans 11, which we'll get to in a couple months, uh, uses this word as well. Same author, same book. And we get a little bit of an insight in terms of how Paul means intends this word to be interpreted from, from this verse. So in, uh, in Romans 11, the discussion here is about the nation of Israel. And, and Paul is describing how you know Israel was God's chosen people, but they rebelled against him. And so he's dealing with some of those questions. Here's what he says. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Paul's referring back to a story in the books of Kings where Elijah is there, he's a a faithful prophet, and he's going, I'm the last guy standing, I'm the last one left. God, it feels like, like everyone else has bowed the knee to Baal, and I'm the only one here, and you've forsaken us. And... God answers, verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God didn't reject the people he foreknew. God didn't reject the remnant that he had chosen by grace. Again, it's not that God just knew it was going to happen. It's that God chose for it to happen. This was God's choice. And, And you may at that point go, well, then why is it? for know, right? I mean, doesn't know make it sound like knowledge, like what God knew in advance? Why is, it, why is that? Well, we have to understand the Bible uses the word know even to mean different things, and I'm saying K-N-O-W here. It's not just information, but oftentimes the word know communicates entering into relationship, right? So the Scripture says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived for a son, Know often is talking about entering into a relationship. For example, in Hosea 13, verse 5, God says, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. I didn't just know you were going through that. I was in relationship with you through it. I had had chosen to love you despite that. Jeremiah 1.5 makes this clear as well. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So that word foreknow sometimes means that God knows in advance, and sometimes means that God chose in advance. But based on this context, it seems clear that Paul is saying God chose you in advance. How can you know that all things are working together for good? Because God loved you from the beginning. God chose you from the beginning. And as he'll say here, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. He did it from first to last. How can you be sure that all things are working together for good? Because before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon you. You go, well, why would God do that? Why would God, I mean, if you're at all, I mean, some of you are like, well, yeah, you chose me. And if that's you, you, you don't understand anything about the gospel. You don't understand anything about the depth of your sin, right? If you know at all about how holy God is and how, fa- how far short you've fallen, you would say, why would God love me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That would be your attitude. That would be your mentality. Why does God love his people? Men, I want to ask you, those of you men who are married, if your wife came to you and said, honey, why do you love me? What would you say? It's a trick question. (laughs) It's dangerous, right? This is dangerous ground. right? Uh, We had some singles, Kurt and Megan got engaged this weekend. We're really excited for them. Yeah? Wonderful. Way to go, guys. You're still smiling. It's wonderful. And, and if Megan came to Kurt and said, Kurt, why do you love me? Whew, Kurt, be careful, man. It's a dangerous question. Right? Because, listen, you might be tempted to say something like, I love you because you're so beautiful. Oh. But what happens someday when Megan is wrinkly, and saggy, and not all that physically beautiful. And I'm sorry, Megan, it's going to happen. It's going to. Look around at the rest of us. It's going to happen, right? If if Kurt's love for Megan is based on how beautiful she is, then in a sense, it's conditional, right? And when she's no longer beautiful, she begins to go, does he really love me, or is he going to trade me in for a newer model? If the answer to the question, why do you love me, is because you're so smart, and I love the kind of conversations we can have. Again, wonderful to have great conversations, but what happens when she begins to experience dementia, (laughs) and her mind's not as sharp, or as my grandfather experienced Alzheimer's? A lot of people get left when that happens, because the love's conditional. What if the answer was, well, I just love the way you serve me? I love the way that you just, you're so helpful to me. Well, what happens now when you're sick and incapacitated and can't help, right? It's a dangerous question, men, right? And so the answer, when you, if you ever get asked this question, it's like the, do I look fat in these clothes? It's like a very difficult question to navigate, right? But I'm gonna help you here. I'm gonna make it easier, okay? If you ever get asked that question, why do you love me? Here's the answer. Because I love you. Oh, now that not that good, ladies? I love you because I love you. I just love you. It's unconditional. It's not based on your beauty or your smarts or your helpfulness. I love you because I love you. And so if we would go, well, God, why would you love me? Why would you set your grace upon me? You know what God's answer to his people is? Because I love you. We have an example of this in the book of Deuteronomy. Where God is describing his relationship to his chosen people. Look at this, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. God's saying to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's that's choosing. That's foreknowledge. It's for loving, setting his love upon them. God, why did you do that? Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God, why do you love us? Because I love you. Right, if you read in Ephesians 1, it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as his sons according to the praise of his glorious grace. You go, well, You Why did he do that? Because he wanted to. And he's God. And he loves you. But I don't understand. Didn't I do something? No. Did, so get this. It's not. And this is how many of us were taught growing up. It's not that God looks down the quarter of time and sees the good people or sees the people that are going to believe or sees the people that are going to go, yeah, that Jesus, I should follow him. It's not like he sees them and chooses them. When God looks down the quarter of time, what he sees are people dead in their sins. And he says in his grace, I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to set my love upon you. Why, God? Because I love you. The first reason we know that everything in our lives is working for our good is because God chose to love us before the foundation of the world. He foreknew us. Second thing God did, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what it says here in verse 29. Look at this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son word predestined is, uh, is found a number of places in the Bible. Some people get uncomfortable with it. They go, oh, I don't really like to talk about predestination. I heard one pastor say, he said, listen, the only way to get rid of predestination is with scissors. <laughs> it's in the Bible. It's there. You've got to cut it out or you just got to face it and go, what does this mean? And so, so we want to try to understand, what, what does it mean? And what does it mean in this context, right? God, those whom he foreknew, those whom he chose beforehand, he also predestined. And that might make you go, well, isn't that the same thing? How is that different? Well, here's how it's different. Foreknowledge is who. This is who I'm choosing. Predestination is what they're destined for. Right? And what does he say here? That that the people of God who are loved before the foundation of the world are destined for. What's our destiny as the people of God? He also predestined, it says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Right, you, you can go to churches that want to talk all about your destiny. And, and you, a lot of times that's for the here and now. You know, what God's, you know what your destiny is if you're a follower of Christ? Someday, your character, and your heart, and your attitude, and your desires, and your words, and your actions are going to be like Jesus. Not like you. Not the selfishness not the bickering, not the ungratefulness, not the lust. Someday, God's plan for you is that you would be as wise and as kind and as bold and as gracious and as generous and as loving as Jesus. That's what he's doing for us. That's our future. And so when we look at Okay, God's working all things together for our good. What that's pointing to is that future. It doesn't mean God's working all things in a way that they're just going to magically work out and we're going to like the circumstances. What it is, is it promises that everything that happens is going to lead us to being more like Jesus. And here's the thing. All the things you think will make you happy, other than Christ, you know what, you, know what you really are after? You're after being the kind of person that Jesus was. And this is what God has promised to do. This is his plan from before time began. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what God uh, intends to do. He tells us about this other places. Philippians 3, uh, 20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body maybe more about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, talks about this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, right? We all look like Adam. We all have the sin and rebellion of Adam. Just like that's true. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We were made in the image of God. That image was distorted and broken by sin. And in Christ, we are remade into the image of God the Son. It's an amazing truth. Absolutely spectacular. We're gonna get the family resemblance, is what that's saying. Right? So, some families, I, I kind of, you know, just in a church, I'm one of these families. Like you look at the kids and you just go, I know who your parents are. Right? I mean, you look at my little girls and it's like those are Simmons, right? They look at their legs, they're strong, you know, and they're I mean, they just those are those are his kids, right? and, and some of you, your kids are just indelibly stamped with they look like you, right? This is saying God is giving us a family resemblance. You see in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that we would have a family resemblance, that we would all look like our older brother, Jesus. It's an amazing truth. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his plan. It's been his plan forever. How do we begin to now experience that? Well, it's the next one. And those whom he predestined, it says in verse 30, he also called. Called. The third thing that God has done for us is God has called us. Uh, This word has with it the idea of invitation, though invitation's not really strong enough. uh, The word would more be like summoned. Right, If, if a court summons you to jury duty, you don't typically view that, at least you shouldn't, as an invitation. Hey, what am I doing? No, it's like the court has the authority where where that that summons creates your incentive to do it. You you wanna do it because you you have to. right? There's a, a power there. And so God has, in the same way, called us. He invites everyone through the gospel through the proclamation of his word, right? There is an opportunity, Uh, God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. And if you ever shared that message or heard that message, that's a gospel invitation. What this is talking about is the power of God in such a supernatural way where he summons you and says you are not just invited but you're mine. I am adopting you. You've been predestined to be a son or daughter of mine and I'm calling you. Now listen, this summons, this call of God is not a hear kitty kitty call. How many of you have cats? So sorry for you. Um, how many of you have cats that come when you call it? Surprising number, right? Wow. I guess that might be a reason to have one, maybe. But most cats are like that, right? I mean, most cats you go, here, kitty kitty. Here, here, kitty, kitty, P- please, here? here, here, kitty, never mind, right, and the cat just stares at you, right, and you feel like it's looking at your soul, you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm coming, right, I don't know, I'm not sure, right, that's, that's, when this says that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he also called, that's not the kind of call, right, God's not going, here, kitty. I hope so, if you want to. No, no, no. The, the call of God is more like the call when Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. Jesus' friend Lazarus had died and he had been uh, invited to come there and everyone was grieving and everyone was, was, was distraught. And Jesus himself even wept, it says there. And he, and he told everyone, listen, he's not, he, 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 he's sleeping. The reality, he's, he'd been dead. He'd been dead for a number of days. His body was stinking. And Jesus issued a call to a dead man, to come to life. And it wasn't a hear, kitty, kitty call. It was a, Lazarus, come forth. The command created the power to do what the command was, right? He's a dead man. How do, how do you tell a dead man to wake up? If, you're, if you have that power, that summons, that call, you, you just say, Lazarus, wake up. Lazarus, come forth. Right? And the scripture says that we, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. Right? And so, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you experience, like I did, a moment, and maybe not even just a, a single moment or a single day that you remember, but a season of life where you just sensed God wasn't just inviting you, He was sort of grabbing you by the collar and saying, Come with me. You're mine. That's always for me. When I was in high school, I, I had an experience where though I had grown up going to church, though I had grown up hearing an invitation, though I had gone to a, a Billy Graham crusade at Mile High Stadium, and I got an invitation to come down on the field, and I, I guess it was to give my life to Christ, but I just wanted to go on the field, right? Because it was like God and John Elway, right? I mean, they were close, and I could go on the field where John Elway went. And, I mean, I'd had all these religious experiences. But then in high school, a neighbor got involved in my life. We started reading the book of John, and he confronted me on some things. And and it was through those few weeks. I can't give you the exact date or the exact time, but it was through those weeks when it was like God was just grabbing me. You're mine. You're going to be sold out for me. I love you. I am not letting you go. You've been in this wishy-washy path for too long, and you're mine. It's an amazing thing because those whom he foreknows, he also predestined. He also called. And those whom he called, it says, he also justified. Spent some time talking about this earlier in the series. Romans 4 and 5 talk about this quite a bit. Uh, the idea of being justified is that the idea that is we're in the courtroom of heaven. We're guilty because of our sin. And, uh, and, and what would the verdict be? apart from any intervention of grace, it would be guilty. It would be God's wrath poured out on us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could never live, he died as a substitute in our place, and he rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And so we're in the courtroom of heaven, declared guilty, and Jesus comes in and says, she can have my record, he can have my record. And we then are declared not guilty, we're vindicated, we're set free, and more than just declared not guilty, we're also declared righteous because the perfect record of Jesus is credited to us. We talked about this all in Romans 4 and 5, and here's the big idea with this is that this justification, this being made right with God happens by faith, not by works. Right? A lot of people think you can be made right with God by just be a good person. Work hard, obey the rules. And part of what's so wild about Romans is he's coming in and saying, you can't obey the rules. You can be made right with God only by trusting in what he has done for you. This is sheer grace. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Let me give you just a couple examples. And If you're in Romans, turn back to chapter uh, 4. Again, this justifying happens by faith. God decreed that it would be so. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by our works. It's by God's grace. Here's a quote by Ray Ortland Jr. He says this, God was not just stuck with us. He chose us. He did not have to make do with the likes of us. He chose us. Therefore, your place in God's love is secured not by what you have done for him, but by his infinite capacity to love sin-infested, God-hating, foot-dragging sinners. You're justified not by your works, but by faith in what Christ has done. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, finally, he also glorified. It's this unbroken chain of salvation. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this one's interesting. Glorified has the idea of to be clothed in splendor, to to sort of share in the blessing of God's glory. It doesn't mean that we become a god, but it means that we share in his glory. We are given a new body that is uh, done away with sin, right? No longer wrinkly, no longer saggy, no longer hurting. We're given this new, glorified body. Paul talked about it earlier in this chapter when he said that God is making all things new. Even the creation is groaning to be made new. And that that's going to happen because of, of Christ's resurrection was a foretaste of what's coming for everybody. But what's interesting here is notice that Paul says this in the past tense. Right? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You would expect it to say, wouldn't you? Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he will glorify. But but Paul has said it past tense. Why? Because it communicates that in God's mind and heart, this is done. God's people are as sure of heaven as the people that are already there. This is a done deal because what God starts, he finishes, right? There aren't any elevation chandler towers among God's people, He does it. And so we will be, and in God's mind and heart, we already are glorified. Restored. We're going to be like Jesus. Not with his power, not with his authority, not with his knowledge, not with his deity. But we're going to be remade the way that God Originally created us. Now remember, this is not just about God explaining here's how salvation works. This whole thing started with a four. It was pointing to something, and what it was pointing to was saying, you have this incredible promise that all things are going to work together for good, and here is the bedrock that that promise sits on. Here are the pillars that that promise is held up by. So so this begins to have a real, it can make a real difference in your life, right? This, This is not just some esoteric, kind of theological, let's just sort of you know, debate this stuff. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Did Adam have a belly button? You know, these sort of worthless theological conversations. This matters. There's a lot at stake in this. So let me just tell you briefly three things, and there could be a lot more, but I, I just have three. Three things that will be true of you if this hits home. If this truth hits home, three things. First one, you will have confidence and courage. You'll have confidence and courage. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's what he's going to say next week in Romans eight thirty to 38. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Why would I be afraid? Why would I be worried? Why would I be stressed? Now listen, we feel that way a lot, don't we? But the degree to which this hits home, it helps us to be courageous, to be confident. Love this quote by Ray Ortland. He says this, Paul did not write this to the Roman church so that they could discuss it in the abstract. He wrote Romans 8 so that the Christians in Rome could walk into the arenas and face the lions with songs of praise on their lips because they felt in their hearts more keenly than they felt the lions' fangs on their throats that nothing could ever separate them from the love of God. Now those Christians faced a different reality than we did. We're not going to be hauled into an arena and and threatened to be killed by lions, though they were. But you have all kinds of lions that are are threatening you. Right, as the culture becomes increasingly hostile to what you believe, you can have courage, because if God is for you, who can be against you? As you face the difficulty of, of, of a struggling child, or the lion of a divorce, or a broken relationship, or a breaking relationship, as those things stare you down and you begin to go, I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I can keep handling this. What can get you up in the morning is knowing that God is working all things together for good and that he has planned it and loved you from first to last. This can give you strength. This can give you confidence. This can give you courage. Here's a second thing this truth can do. If this hits home, you will be filled with gratitude. Gratitude you will be filled with gratitude. Listen, ungrateful people, entitled people, are ugly, miserable people. Aren't they? I mean, isn't that your experience in life? The people who think, well, somebody owes me. People who think, well, I, I don't need to thank anyone. That's a miserable way to live. And what this truth gives you the opportunity to do is to be incredibly grateful. Because what did you contribute to this? What What did you do to deserve God working everything together for your good? (whistles) Nothing. Zip. Zero. God did it. This was his grace. This was his love. This was his decision to, to, to set his love upon you in such a way that you would become like Christ, to call you to himself, to forgive your sin, and to glorify you. That is amazing grace. There's a wonderful book. I'd encourage you, if you're wrestling with some of this or you just want to go deeper, it's a short little book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he makes an interesting point in there. He says, you know, a lot of people sort of resist the idea of, of foreknowledge or of predestination. It, it just feel like that, that, that rubs them kind of the wrong way. But you know what he said? He says, every Christian believes that it's true. Some of you right now, you may be going, well, not me. He, listen to him out. Hear him out. Here's what Packer says. Here's how you know every Christian believes that God did this. Because all of us thank God for our salvation. And all of us pray for the salvation of others. Why would we do that? Unless it's God that does it. Why would we thank God? We wouldn't. We would be like the the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and the tax collectors, right? The Pharisee who stands and says, God, it's a good thing I'm not like all these people. Right? We would be entitled. We would say, well, God, I've sure paid my price. I gave a lot to the church. I really volunteered a lot. You owe me. That's not gratefulness. Anyone that had that kind of attitude, you would question whether they really were a Christian, wouldn't you? But a real Christian says, God, thank you, I didn't deserve this. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Wow. Here's the third thing that'll be true if this hits home, is you'll be eager to tell others. You'll be eager to tell other people that they can come into relationship with God. See, because there are people who have been foreknown and who have been predestined, who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. And they're gonna, and God is gonna maybe use you to to tell them about Jesus, to help them see that they can find life in Christ. Right, this should make us go, I wanna tell everybody that life can be found in Christ. There is a God who can work all things together for your good. Trust him, believe in him. By faith you can be made right with him. You can have a promise of a glorified new life. You just would want to tell everybody, wouldn't you? If, if you don't, I mean, if your reaction is to go, well, uh, this makes it sound like we're all just robots, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm good. God, thanks that you saved me. I don't really need to tell anyone. If, if, if they're going to get saved, they'll get saved. What? What? Do you think that in any, in any shred of a way reflects the heart of Jesus? Who came to seek and save the lost? Who poured himself out? No. If this hits home. Listen, we will be confident and bold. We will be grateful. And we will be generous to share this good news with anyone who will hear it. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Father, this is amazing love and we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you pour yourself out for us and God that um, we are not random acts of chance or there's nothing uncertain about our relationship with you because you've promised to complete it from first to last. God, thank you that that's true. And God, for those of us that are enduring pain, that are enduring difficulty, that are wondering how it is that you could make all things work together for good, God, would they see that if they've been foreknown, they've been predestined, they've been called, they've been justified, they've been glorified, that you are for them, who could be against them, and that you can be trusted. God, give us that faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Luke. So now is the time where we respond to that. I mean, right now, you've probably been responding in your heart, right? There's been joy welling up. There's been gratitude welling up. Those are some amazing realities that we were foreloved, that our destination was determined before the world began, that God effectually, His, his calling on us worked in us. That he made us right with him and that one day the presence of sin will be eradicated from our lives. Those are truly incredible promises that we've been reminded of. And the question is, how can God do that? How is that possible?